When I was coming out, Betty DeGeneres was a prominent ally for our community. This podcast is about celebrating the Bettys in our lives, the people who made a difference in our coming out stories simply by showing up and standing in unconditional love. But unconditional love doesn't mean you still don't have questions or concerns or fears. It just means we have to help each other through that conversation. This is the Gay Podcast for Everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Can't All Be Betty. My name is Angela Briones, and this is the podcast where we flip the lens on the coming out story, invite our family into the conversation, and open the closet one story at a time. Now, y'all remember when you were a kid and you'd be playing outside with your friends and your parent would come out and check on you or whichever adult was responsible for looking after you would come to check on you and you'd look at them with these eyes like, am I doing okay? Am I doing all right? Do I have your approval basically? And merely based on a look from them, good or bad, you got the message, right? You knew if you were doing okay. You didn't have to say anything. They didn't have to say anything, but you got the message loud and clear, right? Well, I've got someone on the podcast today who's basically taken that concept to a new and I believe game-changing level. His name is Chris Tompkins and he's a writer, a teacher, and an author. And his new book that comes out next month in May is called Raising LGBTQ Allies, A Parent's Guide to Changing the Messages from the Playground. And in this podcast, I'm gonna talk to Chris about that book and talk about the ways that language shapes our lens, both for our inner and outer world and how heteronormativity creates those harmful messages that are so deeply ingrained that many times we're not even aware of them. Even me, that's how I actually came to know of Chris. He wrote this article about a concept that I didn't know about called internalized homophobia. And after I read it, it was this huge aha moment for me because for a long time, I couldn't figure out how it was possible that I was living this out and proud life, but I had this deep, deep seated shame for being gay. And I later learned that that is what internalized homophobia is. And it stems from those internalized messages that start very early in our lives that get planted. And if we're not paying attention to them, they grow. So to change that story, Chris is starting from the beginning, from the playground. This conversation was a huge eye-opener for me, y'all. It was so, so valuable. And I know it will be for you too. This is my conversation with Chris Tompkins. Chris, welcome to the podcast. I am really excited to be talking to you today. I've been following you on social media and I discovered the topics that you've shared in your work, in your writing and in your TEDx talk. And all of that really resonated with me because fundamentally you and I both recognize that there are connections and disconnections with our allies that if we break down those walls and we talk about them, that allows for growth. And you have a book coming out very soon that talks about this, like it's for our allies. And I do want to get into that. But before we get into that, can you tell me and tell the listeners a little bit about you, a little background so that we can get to know you a little bit? Yeah. First, just let me say thank you for having thank me. You. It's it's really wonderful to be here today. And just, you know, from social media, that's the, I, I think the beauty of social media, like we've kind of said before, but um, it's an honor to be here. So a little bit about me. Um, I live in Los Angeles and I've been teaching social emotional learning for the past six years throughout LA. Um, I'm a spiritual life coach. I also work with people, individuals, um, one-on-one, and I do LGBTQ advocacy work. So I consider myself an LGBTQ inner advocate. Um, And maybe that will, will come out in the conversation, but but yeah, that's it's a uh, it's I think a lot of the work that I do is very much about using kind of spiritual tools for sure, and so that's kind of one of the ways that I incorporate my advocacy work. 
I love that. I love that. And I have to say, like, I first learned about you really through your writing. You wrote an article in Elephant Journal that was called I'm Homophobic Too, Confessions of a Gay Man. And that title was everything. Like the moment I read it, Mm. I knew exactly Mm. what it was about. Yet at the same time, I learned about this concept that as a gay person, I knew nothing about which was internalized homophobia. Can you tell me a little bit what is internalized homophobia? And Mm. then maybe we can dive into that a little bit more. Mm. Yeah, sure. Um, So internalized homophobia, um, how I kind of came across it, and this is also connected to the book, but um, one of the things that I write about a lot is what I refer to as messages from the playground. And the reason I call them that is because when I moved to Los Angeles in 2008, I moved here to work for a very large national LGBTQ advocacy organization. And after I came out of the closet, um, I kind of immersed myself in LGBTQ advocacy work. I was really, I used to live in Tucson, Arizona. And so I would drive to Phoenix, Arizona, because Phoenix had a large HRC presence. And so I would make the drive and I was really getting involved. And so um, wound up moving to Los Angeles. And yet I still, there was like this, still something inside that wasn't quite like clicking. It seemed as if no one else was talking about it, um, like among my friends and colleagues. And so how, how I kind of started to discover it was I realized like I still played on the same playground as everyone else, meaning that I still picked up those messages. And even as a gay person, those messages stuck to me. And so when I came out, those labels, I didn't realize were still there. And so I feel like that's kind of the spiritual work is where, you know, it's about taking an inner exploration and kind of uncovering the things that maybe we don't consciously, we can't see. And so for me, internalized homophobia was a way for me to heal the internalized messages that I had picked up and absorbed unconsciously that I wasn't aware that I had. And I think that one of the things that's important to talk about when we talk about internalized homophobia is, interestingly, you live in Austin and Brene Brown is like a huge, you know, she's, she's from Austin as well, lives there. But, um, you know, she really talks about shame a lot. And one of the things that she talks about Brene Brown in talking about shame is she says that three things happen whenever we have conversations about shame. We either shut down, change the subject or deny that we have it. And so she she encourages sometimes to use another word whenever you're talking about something that's shameful. And so for me, internalized homophobia is shame. It's shame that we've internalized. And sometimes when we have conversations about that, even the name internalized homophobia sounds very like threatening. It sounds, in my experience, um, a lot of people maybe resist it because there's an element of like blame or, you know, how could you, it's almost like you're against yourself kind of thing. And so maybe there's a little bit of like what Brene Brown says, there's a little bit of, you know, shutting down, denying that I have it or changing the, the conversation. And so messages from the playground was a way for me to kind of enter into conversations that people maybe were resisting to have around the notion of internalized homophobia, you know? And so I think that um, for me, it was a way of separating myself from homophobia. In order to do that, though, I had to look within. Because as children, we pick up messages about everything. Right. So is it like messages 
that not necessarily overt messages, but just in general language that contain this kind of heteronormative background, I guess, for lack of of a better term. I, I mean, I know this happened for me. When I look back at my childhood, I can see little moments where people didn't necessarily have to say gay is bad, but I definitely right. got the message gay is bad, sure. which is why, sure. we, why we're in the closet in the first place. Right, 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 right. Yeah, um, you know, kind of a really easy way. I, I kind of equate homophobia. Um, I mean, and I write about this in my book, but, you know, I, I write about even the name homophobia is kind of misleading sometimes because you know, a phobia is, is actually like a really diagnose, it's a diagnosable thing. Like people genuinely have phobias where their body physically reacts to whatever it is that they, they fear, um, a phobia. So even saying homophobia is almost kind of like, well, I'm not scared. Uh, I don't have this phobia, but it's more of these distorted kind of misguided messages about a particular group of people. And that comes from places and it's pat they're passed down. And so it's kind of like, I call it like, if you go to the store, like if I go to C, I don't, do you have CVS? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So like, you know, when I go to CVS, sometimes, you know, if I'm shopping and I'm not conscious, I'm just like in there and I'm, you know, kind of tuned out and I'm just picking up stuff off the shelves. But sometimes if I'm more present, I can start to like hear this, the music that's playing. Oh, I like that. Oh, I love this song. And and then I'll say, if I'm with someone, like, oh, I love this song. And, and then they'll say, well, what, what are you talking about? What song? And then I'm like, listen, the song that's on the, mm-hmm. that's being played right now. And they had, they didn't hear it because they weren't tuned into it. But then once I point that out to them, they're like, oh yeah, I hear that song too. And that's kind of like internalized homophobia. It's that homophobia is just this background kind of like, it's almost like pollution in the air, like pollen. It's in the air by virtue of being raised in a dominant, patriarchal, heteronormative society. So unless we kind of stop and pause and realize that it's just kind of this like background music and we have to really pay attention to it, otherwise it creeps in, like anything, fear-based creeps in. And and that's why it's the inner exploration. And so when it does creep in, because it it definitely did for me and I'm I'm sure many other people, which is you know, why this term exists because of the messages I've received, I have certain, a certain lens about who I am. And it's not necessarily a positive one because I've received these messages that being gay is bad. I should feel shame for it. So at the same time that I'm out and proud, I simultaneously still feel these conflicting messages of I'm a bad person. Somehow those two things can coexist. Right. Is that right? right. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. That's really beautifully said. And I think it's so important what you just said to be able to like name that because I think that sometimes we think it's either or. And so there's this like almost, I can't speak for everyone, mm-hmm. but in my own experience, there's almost this like, if I acknowledge that I still have some of those homophobic feelings within myself, I feel that I'm turning my back on my community or I'm turning my back on, you right. know, myself. And so, um, how can I have both of those? And so then what I'll, what I do is I don't talk about it. I don't, I shut it down. And that's the very thing, like, as you know, you know, what, what we resist persists. And so it's the very thing that's almost like this blockage in our lives mm-hmm. or in my life. It was, I mean, I was working for this national LGBTQ organization living in Los Angeles, California, my friends, you know, all 
and I'm like, how can I still have these feelings? And so I just, I didn't talk about it. I denied it. Mm -hmm. I cut it out. But then that's when I started to use alcohol or drugs as a way of, of anesthetizing that, that shame. And so what I want to make, I want to offer and even being able to talk about this is, you know, to lessen the dichotomous thinking of it has to be either this or that, but to allow us to say, okay, it could be this and this, and that's the bridge to the healing. Right. And you know, it's really interesting. Uh, we kind of talked about this just before we started the podcast, but for me, the two things that are that have coexisted while I've been doing this podcast is I was very excited to start this conversation. I thought, oh, it's such an important topic. And the more I started talking about it, I started realizing that I have so much of this, this internalized homophobia, so deep-seated that I don't even realize how much it steers the language that I use in my life. So as much as I'm trying to have a bridge between allies and our community, there's like a gap in between there. There's this gap and that's where your book comes in. And I'd love, this is a, a really nice bridge for your book because the gap that is happening is in the language that we use when to our children, I guess is sure. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really beautifully said. I think that, um, what I love, I want to, I love your podcast. I even love that you mentioned. Oh, thank you. Yes. And I, I think even I love that you're, you know, you mentioned that this is for our allies. And I think one of the best ways that, you know, people who want to support the LGBTQ community is to understand that similarly to ourselves, like, I think that sometimes we avoid having certain conversations because we don't want to make a mistake or we don't want to get it wrong or we don't want to acknowledge that maybe we are having a bit of difficulty in learning. Learning takes a little bit of, um, it requires some, some concerted effort. And I think that sometimes for our allies, I know in my own family, to understand internalized homophobia from them supporting their LGBTQ loved ones allows them to create a space for their loved one to show up in a way of being able to be seen fully. And I think that sometimes when we rush the process, then we don't allow that person to really step into themselves in a way that they want to, um, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And I think that moment right there for a lot of my, um, my friends who are, you know, LGBTQ allies, they are very concerned about that particular part. Mm. There are some people who are like, I'm going to make a mistake by doing too much, or I'm going to make a mistake by doing too little. But how do you even open that door without offending someone? And then essentially just doing too much or doing too little. Right. Yeah, that's it's a very valid question. And I even appreciate that they would be thinking these things because really that's what my book is for, is that it's it's kind of taking proactive action. And I think that sometimes parents, in my own experience and with my own mom and our relationship and, and even in the parents that I work and know in my life, they think that, well, I don't want to get it wrong or I, I you know, I don't want to offend mm -hmm. or I don't want to say the wrong thing or, um, or, or sometimes if they try, they'll get a reaction that's opposite than the one that they thought they were going to get. And so then that can sometimes create a feeling of like rejection or failure. And so they go kind of, they, the parent will kind of retreat. And I think that one of the things I really hope 
to help parents and caregivers understand with my book is that these conversations aren't a one-time thing. And it's not a conversation that's a one-size-fits-all. And so I think that the most important thing that a parent could do is to meet their child where they're at and be honest. That's one of the things I write in the very kind of towards the end of my book is like, if there's anything that I could offer through everything that we've journeyed through together in this book, it's to stay present, be honest, and always have an open dialogue going with your your child. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be the same or even look like what you think it's going to look like. And that's okay. Because I think that the more that we can create space, because that's what that does is on an energetic level, not to get like super like esoteric or metaphysical, but even just that consciousness of staying present, being honest and keeping an open dialogue going with your child, that's a consciousness and that creates space energetically. And your child may not be aware of that on a conscious level, but they can feel it. And so it's almost like they, they show up differently. They, they show up in a way that's more authentic because you're, you're creating that space. Because that's one of the things I write about my book, in my book is that, you know, with everything that's gone on this past year with COVID-19 and the pandemic, you know, we are energetic beings. Like we respond to energy. And so children especially are so intuitive. And that's really what my hope is, is that the more we can have these conversations, it's not about getting it right. Because just like in life, you know, we're going to make a mistake and that's just part of life. And if we do make a mistake, I think one of the most beautiful things that we can offer is I always, I I, I say this often, is that where there's been rupture, there's an opportunity for repair. And it's in the repair that there's even greater potential for healing. And so I think that sometimes we, we want to resist making ruptures. And that's not to say to go out and intentionally make ruptures. It's to say that if there is one, like if I make a mistake with the conversation I had with my niece or nephew, which has happened, then it's in the repair that we actually grow closer or we grow stronger as like a, in a relationship. That's beautiful. It really is. And I want to mention the name of your book, Raising LGBTQ Allies, A Parent's Guide to Changing the Messages from the Playground, which I think is is certainly a groundbreaking conversation because the language that you use from day to day, especially right now where we're very mindful of gender and gender issues that are that are coming out right now that have always been prevalent. But I mean, I think that you kind of build a bridge there because you, you say is it's as much as what you don't say as what you do say. Yeah, absolutely. Right. I heard you say right now three things. And I think that if I could just specifically touch on those is you mentioned the importance of language and the importance of having conversations. And the third one is about, I think specifically with, when it comes to language, word choice. And I, this isn't a, so the third would be to not be hypervigilant, because I think that sometimes when we are hypervigilant, then we tend to avoid because we don't want to make a mistake. And so this isn't about hypervigilance, because I think that we do live in a time where people are a lot more becoming maybe more mindful, which is really wonderful. And I think that's important to still be able to, to say 
something and to not allow your fear to prevent you because it's in that, it's in that silence that still is very much felt. And one of the things I, if I could just kind of highlight specifically just to invite maybe even your listeners, um, something maybe that they can tangibly take away, you know, today or whenever they, they listen to the podcast is, um, the use of issues and different and, I often speak on panels of, you know, where I go into schools and I share my coming out story. And, and it's, it's one of the forms of advocacy that I do. And I think it's really powerful is when people can hear stories, they, it's transformative. And one of the things that I often encourage people to do is to pay attention to using the word different when talking about LGBTQ people who are LGBTQ or like, especially when it comes to kids. Mm -hmm. So like if I stand in front of a group and say, you know, if I'm sharing my coming out story and, and I start out and I say, you know, well, I always knew I, I was different or there was something different about me. That's very common. And I can appreciate that. And I also think it's important because when I hear different, I think of the young kids in the classroom who are listening. And as an adult, I can recognize that you know, being different is actually really, you know, I'm an adult, I understand that. But as children, we have an inherent desire to belong yeah. and to be seen. And so when I hear as a young person, when I hear the word different, I actually, that tells me. So even though I'm a young person hearing this panel of people speaking, you know, there on behalf of LGBTQ people or to support them, um, and they hear the word different, there's this like subcon. that's the messages from the playground, you know, the internalized messages. Mm -hmm. And so I invite people to use difference because difference is a much more, there are differences between us and difference is a lot more kind of like, it, it feels less like separate, like different, different. There's like judgment, whereas right. difference, difference is like, Oh wow. I'm curious. What's your difference? You know what I'm saying? And that, that, that goes back to the energy of the consciousness and, and children respond to that. And the second one was issues. That's one of the, actually a, a big section of my book is I, I write about if you were to like Google LGBTQ plus issues, you're mm -hmm. going to see a ton of articles and headlines and, and even on websites that are LGBTQ affirming, they'll say, LGBTQ issues or sexuality yeah. issues or gay and lesbian issues or transgender issues. And that word issues to me, it stems kind of from the more pathologizing like queer people there, they have issues. There's issues like mental health issues. Like there's something diagnosable. Um, and I, I talk about that in my book too, is the whole history of, you know, diagnosing and, and mental illness when it comes to people who are gay, lesbian, um, transgender and, so I invite, I invite people to use like when talking about LGBTQ topics to use like words like topics or, or matters pertaining to LGBTQ people. And sometimes, you know, when we say things out loud, it's different from when we write them down on paper. And so it may not be convenient to every time I say LGBTQ like topics, if I say matters pertaining to the LGBTQ community, that's like a mouthful. <laughs> um, I just, I think that it is important though, especially when I think of children and the messages that they're internalizing to be mindful of, of the words that I do use in talking about certain, you know, communities. That is so important because 
like you said earlier, you mentioned the word energy and just the word energy that came from changing those words in that sentence, the energy that came off of that sentence was so powerful, but in a very positive way. And, you know, I resonated with it. And this is really what excites me about this topic and this podcast. One of the reasons I wanted to do it is I kind of want to share with our allies that I, as a gay person, am not going to get every gay thing right. Do you know what I mean? Totally. (laughs) I'm always learning. It's not a gay thing. It's not a straight thing. It's just where people who who are learning Learning. the language of one another, you know? Yeah. So I think that that's an important thing to to keep in mind because I know I got some questions from friends that I want to share with you. And one of those questions was, what verbiage do I use when I'm talking to my child? Because I don't even know the right, quote unquote, right or wrong thing to say. But I think that just that nugget of information that you said of like changing out that one word has a huge impact, I think. Yeah, it, it really does. I, I, I mean, I, in my own experience, you know, working with youth, it, it, it really does have a huge impact. And I think, I think language matters. It really does. And I think it, it also is important to acknowledge, like you said about your listeners, is that we're learning. <laughs> I'm not going to get it right 100% of the time. You know, one of the things, if I can offer your, your listeners and maybe the parent who wrote, wrote in about that question, because um, I've heard it myself. I mean, that's really what started this whole journey for me was that my book was a letter that I wrote my family because my nephew asked me a question that made me realize like, oh, my family's not having certain conversations. <laughs> um you know, I live in, I live in LA, they live in Arizona. And so when I started to call some of my family members, my own cousins and sister, sister sister-in-law and just friends who have kids. And, and I started asking them questions, you know, are they, are you having conversations with your kids? Like, do they know that they have a gay uncle or, you know, and most of the parents that I spoke to said they didn't know, like kind of this parent, they didn't know what to say. They didn't, they didn't know how to have that conversation or they didn't know what words to use or, and, uh, and one of the things I write about in my book is that I just find that so curious because I don't think that anyone really ever wonders like how to have conversations about, you know, mommy and daddy or, um, you know, the cartoons that they just, they watch mm-hmm. or the, the prince and the princesses and the cartoons and, you know, things are certainly changing in media. Um, I do though think that it's still very much important to be able to have conversations because um, that's the proactive measures that we can take because I think that one of the most important things, even when it comes to like anything related to healing or medicine, you know, doctors will always encourage you to be proactive to prevent something because once you have it, then you have to treat it. And so if we can take measures to proactively prevent then we don't have to treat it. And it's the same thing, homophobia, transphobia. I look at that as like a disease. It's a, yeah. it's a disease of fear And so for us to not have to treat the shame and trauma, we can take proactive measures to prevent it. And that's by having conversations. And if I could just offer the reader, well, but the listener, the person who wrote in is um, my friend Nia, I'll attribute this to her because she shared this with me and it's so helpful is don't focus on keeping up, stay focused on keeping open. And I think that that's a real powerful, because I think that it's the, when I get stuck on focus on keeping up, then I don't want to make a mistake. So then I just won't say anything. If I could stay focused on keeping open, that like creates space. That creates opportunity. 
that creates space for me to say, like, maybe, maybe I say something and maybe it wasn't the right thing to say. But then going back to the rupture and repair, that's a conversation that we get to have. That's a learning moment for me. When you were talking about your nephew, you know, of like, oh, you haven't had this conversation with him yet. For them, I can understand that like until Uncle Chris comes to Arizona, it's probably like this aha moment of, oh, I haven't had this conversation because it hasn't come up yet. So then it kind of leaves you and, mm -hmm. and your sibling or me and my sibling, if we were in that same situation of, we haven't had time to have this conversation of what do we tell the nephew? So there's just a lot of, of talking that we haven't done <laughs> and we need to do. Where do we do that? I guess is the question. You know what I mean? Like, like, where is the space for that other than, you know, oh, you have, I'm going to go see little so-and-so, <laughs> you know, I'm going to go see my little nephew and I'm bringing my boyfriend or I'm bringing my partner. And how do you feel about that? And honestly, right. I hate that. I feel like I have to have that conversation. I, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah, that goes all the way I back do. to the internalized homophobia thing. Cause it's yeah. like, you don't have to have that conversation with me. Why do I feel like I have to have that conversation with you? Yet it has to happen. It's very confusing. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's very, it, it's complex for sure. And I think yeah. that there are, are definitely layers. And I think that one of the things that in my own family, in my own, I'll just, I could speak to my own experience is I haven't been in a long-term relationship since my nieces and nephews have been alive. I have five nieces and nephews. And so I didn't want it to be, oh, well, you know, we'll have this conversation once I do have a partner, because then that makes sense. You know, why bring it up now? You know, Uncle Chris doesn't have a boyfriend. We live in a world that I, I believe we have a responsibility um, to help raise children in a very, in a, in a way that prepares them to live in a world that includes differences. And that's not just about sexuality. That's about gender. That's about race that's about um ability you know children with disabilities like i don't want you know my nieces and nephews to if they see someone not to make comparisons you know because I, I do though think that there is a through line through all of these is that i think that there are conversations that parents can have that prepares the child to live in a world because they're going to go to a school i don't know about you know, everyone, but, you know, my nieces and nephews go to public schools. And so there are like a vast variety of differences. And I think that when you can have conversations with your children about, you know, the way that life expresses itself through each individual, you know, way, I think that makes it a more accepting planet in general. That's just my personal belief. And so I think that, you know, I don't think it's helpful for a kid to, not have conversations about specific things. And then all of a sudden they're in junior high or high school and they come across something and there's like this disconnect because they haven't ever, you, you know what I'm saying? If like they haven't, they weren't given any, like, you know, that I think that that's the role of, of parent and caregivers. That's the role of me as an uncle. And I think that, you know, that's really what the purpose of this book is, is really that we can only take others as far as we've gone ourselves. And so that for me as an uncle, as an advocate, like I'm only going to be able to take others as far as I've gone. And so that's why it's so important for me to do that inner work 
so then I could create space, you know, for others to show up um, and my nieces and nephews and I can have proactive conversations instead of reactive conversations. Right. And I think that there's just so much fear sometimes too. And I, I think you're right. Nobody wants to walk into a space where they feel like other. So I think you're right. The more that we can have these conversations, that everybody has differences. That's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Because I think that suddenly that opens that space for the energy and for the conversation that you were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Well I said. That. I mean, that's really, I think that... And that, and what that does too, is that that helps just by default, by doing that, that helps mm-hmm. dismantle heteronormativity. And, and that's really, that's really important. <laughs> um, I think in this whole process. It really is because basically the more we have these, conver- to me, and that's what it seems like, the more we have these conversations, the less likely that a gay person or a trans person or whoever will feel that internalized homophobia, you know, we'll feel freedom to right. have our differences. And what an, yes. am- what an amazing world that would be. Yeah, I'm absolutely. excited for it. Absolutely. Me really too. And, and that's, the, that's the work that I feel as an uncle, as an LGBTQ inner advocate is that the more that I can, you know, that's, that's what I say with my book is that I hope that these conversations we can do within ourselves first and then we take and share it with with the younger people because we you know we can't that. we can't teach what we don't know kind of thing right well i love that and i i love that there's something it's this is not just for the allies i know your book is you know raising allies but i feel like it's just as much something that i can learn from for myself and share how you know and, and going forward and sharing how i share language with younger community make sure that I'm mindful because what I am mindful about right now is that the language that I've grown up with, it is there. (laughs) It is there. And sometimes it comes out without me knowing it's very subconscious and I have to be more aware and more mindful of how things are impacting me and then how they might impact a a younger community for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Cause if I could just say this too, is that even by doing that, what you just said, you doing that, that shifts consciousness. That's like a consciousness shift. And going back to referencing COVID-19 and the impact that we had uh, on the world just this past year, like we can see clearly that we're all connected. Like I don't think that you can really argue that anymore um, in, a, in a more profound way. In, in my life, since I've been on this planet, like I can't point to a time where I've really felt like, oh, wow, like we all really are connected. And that's just not through our actions, but that's through our thoughts. That's through our energy. And so the more that we can have these conversations and we can kind of shift some of the ways that we use language and be more intentional, um, that creates ripples in the consciousness. And and so we're kind of paying it forward for the next generation. That's what I believe. Absolutely. I think, I think you're doing exactly that with your book and I'm excited for it to come out and to read it. And will you tell everybody where they can go and pre-order it now and where they yeah. can find you if on social media, if they want to look you up and follow yeah. you? And- yeah. Thank you. Um, the, the book is available anywhere books are sold. So you, you can find it on Amazon. You can find it on Barnes and Nobles. You can find it on Goodreads. My publisher is Roman and Littlefield. So the website is Roman, www.roman.com. And the name of the book, you just would type in raising LGBTQ allies. That's 
the main title, the subtitle will come up automatically. And for as far as finding me on social media, my Instagram, Twitter, um, I don't really use Twitter that much, but Instagram for sure is uh, <laughs> is uh, a road trip to love. Um, that's my website. That's that's a whole other conversation. And yeah, yeah, those are the those are the places that they can find me. And I have information about my book there as well. Wonderful. So. And I encourage everybody to go and find you on Instagram. That's where I follow you. Oh, thank you. Your content is so valuable. I just want to tell you how much I appreciate it. Uh, and you. I'm so thankful for you being here today to share yeah, thank you. your message. So everybody get the book and get an extra, get, get it for a friend. And thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been an honor to be here. Absolutely. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yes. Thank you for listening to the conversation today, you guys. I hope you got as much value out of it as I did. I would love to share some of the things that I'm taking away from this podcast conversation because I learned so much from it. But I feel like for me, three things really stood out, which is just staying open to the conversation and using your word choice to create that openness in that space. That really struck me. I love when he said that. But I also love that at the same time that he said, you know, don't be too careful to where it kind of hinders the conversation as well, right? Because if you do accidentally rupture the conversation, there's the repair. And I love all of that. So for me, those are my three biggest takeaways. And I'd love for you to share what your takeaways were too. Like share it with both Chris and I on Instagram, either on his page or on the Betty podcast page. I know we'd both love to hear from you. A link to Chris's social media and to his book are in the show notes, by the way, or you can look on the Betty podcast Instagram page. Thanks again for listening. They can't all be Betty, but they damn well should be. Take care, y'all.